Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. We are just hours away from marking the exact time one year ago that Russia launched an invasion against its neighbor, Ukraine. Now, Russia's invasion has sparked Europe's largest refugee crisis since the Second World War. More than 8 million refugees scattered throughout Europe, um, also here in the U.S. and elsewhere. About 110,000 Ukrainians have arrived in the U.S. as part of the Biden administration's Uniting for Ukraine program. It's a program that you grants a humanitarian parole for displaced Ukrainians who have a U.S. sponsor. Uh, some 150,000 Ukrainians have entered the U.S. through other immigration channels since March uh, 24th of last year. Today, we want to focus on perspectives of several people here in the Midwest who are closely tied for one reason or another to that war. And I'll just mention the U.S. has received more than 200,000 requests agreeing to support Ukrainian parolees, as they're known, as part of this Uniting for Ukraine program under the Biden administration, ranging from individual families wanting to uh, support to churches to nonprofits and other groups. And perhaps you are supporting a refugee from Ukraine or a family in some way or have some other tie to this war. We'd like to hear from you this hour. Your questions are welcome all the way from the geopolitics to the personal aspects of this war as we mark one year since the invasion. 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Joining us uh, uh, for the first part of our program, Oksana Hershok is a student from Ukraine at the University of Iowa. Oksana, welcome to you. Thank you. And uh, also with us, uh, returning to our program, she's been on multiple times, especially since the beginning of this war, Marina Zalosnaya. She's director of the European Studies Group, associate professor of sociology and political science at the University of Iowa. Marina, welcome back to you. Thank you so much for having me. And it's such an interesting perspective that you have. Uh, You are Russian, but grew up in Crimea. Am I remembering that correctly? You're absolutely right. Yes, I am born in the Soviet Union. Um, I grew up in Crimea during the 90s when uh, Crimea was officially part of Ukraine. And And, um, now I'm American. And uh, since uh, 2014, 14, uh, Crimea has been occupied. Uh, I don't know what term we use by the Russians. Is that absolutely? The, yes. Yeah, okay. it's now occupied territory. Yeah, it is. And it's all part of uh, the many dynamics we have to deal with when we talk about this war. Um, Oksana, let me s- start with you um, and, and tell us briefly uh, uh, you, you came to Iowa before this war started. How and uh, in what capacity are you here? So I came here in August 2021, half a year before the war, and I came here to study at the University of Iowa. I study psychology. Yeah, and you're under um, the auspices of a special scholarship as well, aren't you? Oh, yes. I recently received a scholarship uh, called Global Democracy Ambassador Scholarship for Ukrainian students uh, in the United States. And, yeah, this scholarship is supported by... 
uh, people such as um, uh, co-chairs of the scholarship are Daniel uh, Lubetsky. I believe you heard about him, a social entrepreneur, and Colonel Vindman and Gary Kasparov and Chef Jose Andres. Mm. So, yeah, I'm very proud and very honored to be a recipient. Well, congratulations on that. And uh, let's go back to a year ago, Oksana. Take us back to a year ago. You were here in Iowa, it sounds like. What was that day like, that first week of the invasion of your homeland, uh, by Russian troops, uh, you are half a world away. Uh, what was that? What are your uh, the most um, well, probably painful memories from that day, that first week of experiencing the invasion from afar? Yes, it was. It was very depressing to be away and not being with my family and not being with my people, with other Ukrainians. It was. Yeah, it was difficult for me. Yeah. Tell us about communication with your family. All of the rest of your family is back in Ukraine, I understand, in the western part of Ukraine? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, uh, from the western part. My uh, my mom, my dad, my family, my brother and his family, my uncles. Uh, yeah. So co- comparing to the eastern part, we're kind of safe, kind of safer yeah, and I'm able to communicate with them almost every day. Mm-hmm. Okay, via uh, telephone or via some sort of uh, Internet technology? Mostly through Facebook. Mm-hmm. And what do you hear from them? What have those conversations been like over the past um, year? What, what are your discussions about? So we're talking about everyday lives, and uh, we're trying to stay strong because it is, yeah, it is difficult, you know. And we're trying to feel, like, talk about our daily, just about daily topics, you know. But you never know when we can have the last conversation. There is always something deep down there, like, what if? What if there is a missile? What if there is something? Yeah. In the community where your family is, have there have missiles struck? Um not really, not in my hometown, but nearby and also in the region. Mm-hmm. And also, I have to say, we're very clo- kind of close to Belarus. So, you know, when there are jets uh, taken off, there is some kind of tension and uh, stress. Yeah. What can you tell us about the, the mood in your Cre- Ukrainian community, um, gathered from talking with your family and and absorbing all the other communication that you have access to. What is the mood right now? Do you mean in Ukraine? Yes. We're trying to stay strong. We are trying to. We are trying our best. Mm-hmm. Um, Marina, let me get you into this program. You are a political scientist, also a sociologist, and you have ties to this area uh, of the world as well as a Russian who grew up in Crimea in the time of the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, As we mark this one year since the invasion, so many things we could talk about. What comes to mind, top of mind for you when you reflect on a year of, of war, so many refugees scattered around the world? What comes to mind? Like everybody else, I continue to be unsure about the pathways forward. Um, 
one of the things that has become quite clear about this war is that it has surprised us from the very beginning um, till now. Just about every couple months, we are faced with news and realities that we had not expected. Some of them are very um, positive, right? So, for instance, a year ago, could we have predicted that Ukraine would be standing strong um, and united with Western allies in opposition to Russia? Could we have predicted that almost half of the territorial gains that Russia will have made during the year in the eastern parts of the region will, will be returned to Russia, because, sorry, to, to Ukraine because of the courage of the um, Ukrainian army. We couldn't. But the ambiguity and the difficulty of prediction makes it very scary as well going forward. It's very unclear what the next year is going to bring. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to you, Oksana. When we, in the early days of the war, it looked like um, a Russian, the Russian military would sweep in and perhaps replace the government in Kiev um, uh, fairly easily. That didn't happen. But in those early days, um, what were your thoughts? What do you remember talking about with your um, your parents, your family there, if the Russian occupation had succeeded in in overwhelming the Ukrainian military? Yeah. They were trying to take Kyiv, the capital of Ukraine, in three days. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, we're we're trying to fight till the end, till we win. That is the only way we see. Mm-hmm. Have you had in this past year uh, times when you, I'm sure, times when you wish you were among your, among your people? Uh, yes, because I feel like I'm too far. I'm a thousand miles away, and... I feel like I, I should have done something, I should do something, and I'm not doing enough. Yeah. Yeah. Are Are there members of your family, or perhaps extended family, in the military? No. No. Uh, what, what is happening? How are people who are not in the military um, supporting the war effort in your hometown? So, for example, we have a lot of refugees, uh, uh, internally, uh, internal refugees who were... Uh, who moved from the eastern part of Ukraine and probably as well as from central and other regions of Ukraine. So, yeah, we're trying to help them settle down for now in the in my hometown and help them as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marina, t- talk about the, the range of views, and we may have to continue this after a break, which we have in a couple minutes. There, you know, we're hearing about the, the, the causes of the war. What is the debate like within Ukraine? The range of perspectives you find among Ukrainians uh, there uh, about how this war should proceed, how it has proceeded. Right. Um, so the range of debates about the causes of the war and how it should proceed is actually pretty narrow within Ukraine. There is remarkable unity in um, people's reaction to the hostilities, right? So I think Oksana here represented it really well, right? So uh, people continue to try to stay strong, and they agree that um, the only way to end this war is with victory. The range of debates on the Russian side is wider, um, in part because the official declarations of the goal 
of this invasion has changed over time. And in most recent address from President Putin, it was um, it has not given that um, necessary clarification of what the goals actually are um, right now. So uh, at first, Russian people were told that the goal is to um, protect the people in Donbass. Then it was to um, help decrease the influence of the West. And now it's unclear. Yeah, it, it, it has evolved. And because it's unclear... That makes it hard to know how this war may come to an end when the aims of Putin are unclear. Uh, we'll be back in just a moment as we mark this anniversary of the war in Ukraine. We'd like your feedback, your questions, one 780 or email us. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band, and the entire symphony, June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer today marking the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of neighboring Ukraine. With us, Oksana Hershok, a University of Iowa psychology student from Ukraine. Um, she, about a half year before the war started, she began her studies here in the Midwest. Marina Zalosnaya is with us as well, Director of European Studies Group and the an Associate Professor of Psych- Sociology, also political science at the University of Iowa. And uh, we are entertaining your questions, your concerns. Uh, from the geopolitics to the personal here, one 780 9100 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Marina, a question uh, from Bill, one of our listeners, and I think this gets at some of the things we were talking about, the, about the changing aims of Putin. Uh, we also, the, the changing aims of uh, the U- Ukrainians, uh, now that they have uh, shown that they can um, uh, defy the Russian military. Bill asks, in the matter of the possible end of the war in Ukraine, have, uh, have the U.S. and Ukraine left Russia? And Mr. Putin, any legitimate way out for a negotiated peace? He notes it seems that only unconditional surrender as a way out uh, is something the U.S. and Ukraine will accept. You're absolutely right um, about the fact that with the realization of Ukrainian power and determination and with the evidence of Western unity in supporting Ukraine, it it has become clear that Ukraine and the West can ask for more, right? So um, the current position of the Ukrainian government, official Ukrainian position, is that there will be no negotiations unless there is a return to the 1991 boundaries of uh, Ukraine, right? This means that Russia would need to withdraw from the territories they've taken since 2014, including Crimea. Um we also see some of the domestic opposition within Russia starting to admit that this is the aim. And this hasn't always been the case because Crimea has been sort of important for uh, for Putin's constructed myth of national Russian identity. So this shows that 
we're cornering Putin in a way and making it clear that with that that is also on the table right that the entire construction of Russia's claims on Ukrainian territory can and will be challenged mm-hmm. um Let's go to our first caller. Tom is with us in Des Moines, one 780 Hello, Tom. Hi, Tom. Can you hear me? Welcome to the program. Tom is not hearing us for some reason. Uh, let's, let's go back to this and have you focus a little bit more, Marina, on Crimea, because that is an interesting history. Uh, Crimea, part, of course, uh, as you mentioned, you were born in the Soviet Union in Crimea. Um, but the uh, Crimea, this peninsula, it's very valuable, strategically valuable as well, also a very nice vacation spot. But it was gifted to Ukraine um, in uh, how many decades ago? Crimea has officially become part of Ukrainian USSR in 1954, right? So um, at the time, it was more of a symbolic move on behalf of um, on behalf of the Soviet leadership, uh, meant to uh, signify the unity between the different U- U- parts of the Soviet Union. You, uh, interestingly, Crimea does not have a land connection to Russia, right? So it's... Uh, n- it's connected overland to Ukraine, um, but the overwhelming majority of people who have lived in Crimea since the Soviet times um, are of Russian um, ethnicity and Russian speakers. Right. So taking over Russia was a very particular. Sorry, taking over Crimea was a very particular experience for Putin. There was very little opposition. And there was a mistaken assumption on behalf of Putin that he will encounter the same kind of welcome in the rest of Ukraine. Um, And he was proven very wrong. Um, Now, growing up in Crimea in the 90s, um, I was very much exposed to Russian pushback against the new borders that defined Crimea as a part of Ukraine. Um, there was a lot of uh, appeal to local population, um, specifically, you know, the comparison between the um, Russia's economic boom in, in early 2000s and with, you know, people doing really well economically in Russia to um, struggling Ukraine made it very um Appealing to a local population that already identified as ethnically Russian um, to to be a part of of Russia. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, the generations have changed, right? So the kind of people who were receptive to this message were the people who are of my parents' generation, right, who uh, were born right after the Second World War and for whom the... uh, Uh, messages about uh, Russian glory in the Second World War are very appealing for um, more um, young generation, um, of which most of the population is, consists now. um, This is no longer the case. Growing up in Crimea, I considered myself half Ukrainian, half Russian, even though my parents strongly identified with Russians. Um, I speak and understand Ukrainian and... um, I represent, I think, what most 
younger Crimeans feel. Um, we do feel affinity to Russia. We do feel affinity to Ukraine. And uh, But we, we also realized that there were 30 years of independence that Ukraine has had, right, um, before uh, Russia's invasion, which cannot be canceled by a myth of some claim to the territory or interpretation of history. Ukraine uh, is an independent state, and it's not possible for uh, Putin or uh, his cronies or anybody else to simply cancel that part of history and say that Ukraine does not exist and has been invented by um, Soviet leadership, which he implies mm-hmm. um, Russian. Yeah, let's let's go back to our phones. One eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. Jim is with us in Dubuque. Uh, Jim, I hope you can hear us. Uh, what's on your mind? Yes. Go ahead, sir. Well, I uh, I thought I heard someone say that Putin's uh, objectives were not unclear, but he stated them very clearly, and I don't think he's changed since then. I think the most important factor is our uh, illegitimate. Uh, lack of respect for the Minsk agreement, which a couple of uh, European leaders have uh, since uh, admitted was just a stalling technique. Uh, They had no intention of following through with its uh, conditions, allowing autonomy to uh, parts of uh, Ukraine, which are 90% uh, Russian-speaking, who, uh, if we respect democracy, voted uh, to be separate. And uh, so, you know, there's there's no reason to respect anything that the West says when they are openly admitting that they entered into this treaty uh, under false pretenses. Okay, uh, Jim in Dubuque, thanks for that input. Uh, Marina, can you give us some background on the Minsk agreement that Jim uh, mentioned there? Sure. Um, I also would want to uh, clarify that my statement about... Un- you know, lack of clarity about Putin's objectives uh, is not a statement about the actual lack of clarity of Putin's objectives, but rather uh, the way that they're presented to the Russian population, right? So it, it is quite clear that the objective of Putin was to um, go into uh, Kiev and install a puppet regime that would be favorable to uh, Moscow. Now, what is unclear is the narrative that uh, ordinary Russians are getting, and that, that, that has changed significantly in the course of the year. In terms of Minsk agreements, uh, they refer to the agreements signed by uh, local um, heads of states following the breakdown of the Soviet Union, whereby the um, uh, several uh, republics, including Ukraine, gave up their nuclear uh, power in exchange for guarantees of uh, recognition of their nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, you know, it's. Yeah, yeah, but I, but I wonder if in, in this Minsk agreement, back, back to Jim's point here, is if uh, Ukraine, former parts of the Soviet Union, gave up their independence in deciding which alliances they make, make uh, if they are uh, sort of orient themselves toward the West or orient them towards towards Russia. I mean, if you are an independent sovereign state, um, I guess one could argue <laughs> that you have the right to form whatever alliances you see fit. Or is that not realistic in this case? Well, you know, we have lived in the age of great power competition, meaning that smaller nations like Ukraine have had to face the choice of aligning with either one or the other. Um, Now, this is a very difficult question and a very sensitive one, because 
part of the Putin's rhetoric uh, to his people is that Ukrainians have no agency in um, this conflict whatsoever and that the entire th- thing is guided by the Western influence. Um, and it, it, I think it's always very important to to, 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 to to say that even within this bipolar <laughs> sort of world that Ukraine had, had to face, um, it's dangerous to take away um, the agency from people in Ukraine. As I mentioned before, they have experienced successful period of self-governance. And yes, during this period of self-governance, both Russia and the um, Western countries led by the United States tried to sort of pull Ukraine into their own orbit by supporting this or that presidential candidate. But ultimately, we know that the elections were free. Um, which is so much to say for that region, right? For a country that hasn't had, like other countries in the Soviet Union, hasn't had a long tradition of um, independent um, electoral process. Uh, We have seen the mobilization of ordinary people coming out to the streets in um, sort of support of certain ideas. And this is, you know, for, for us in America, this looks like kind of an expected and, and, and a normal way of uh, reacting to governmental decisions, but not for the people in the region. And you can see Russia and Belarus for the alternative examples where the absence of the legacy of a protest and uh, popular mobilization makes it extremely difficult for people to, 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 to find models to follow and sort of expressing their own political agency. And Ukrainians have done it. And uh, Putin cannot take it away by rewriting the history. Mm-hmm. If you've just joined us, Marina Zalosnaya is with us, uh, University of Iowa sociologist and political scientist, and also, um, interestingly, a Russian who grew up in Crimea during the time of the Soviet Union. Join our conversation, one 780 or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Gary in, in Davenport weighs in via email. He prefaces his question uh, with this uh, bit of history. Uh, in 1709, Peter the Great of Russia defeated Charles XII of Sweden in a decisive victory in the Battle of Poltova, uh, writes Gary, thereby enlarging Russian imperial influence in Ukraine. His question, he says, is it possible Putin had Peter the Great in mind when he invaded Ukraine in 2022? Marina? Absolutely possible. I mean, that's uh, not only possible, but very likely. Um, There have been comparisons to Peter the Great that have been made by Putin's cronies. So it's pretty clear that this is where the uh, inspiration comes. And and the the, the entire conflict is very much based in the history of imperialism, right? So when we think, for instance, about the um, likelihood that ordinary Russians stand up against Putin's ambitions, um, not only are we talking about going against repression, right, So because it's actually dangerous now to stand up against within the country, but we're also going against literally the imperialist mindset that has been instilled in, in Russians over the centuries. And this is really hard. You know, I would compare it in some ways to the, the conversation, the reckoning that America is having about its 
identity in specifically in, in relation to the history of slavery, right? So the debates around teaching uh, CRT or whatnot. It, it, there is a lot of domestic opposition to admitting openly that we have collective responsibility for the terrible things we've done in the past. Um, so this is a similar um, similar kind of debate, and it, it makes it really hard and um um, it's going to take years for Russian spirit to decolonize. Uh, it's going to be years before it's actually the comparison to Peter the Great might not be appealing to Russian people because so far, you know, for most of them, this feels like um, the, the kind of aspiration that, you know, that, that they, they wanted, especially in the post-Cold uh, uh, War era where the West has not included Russia into the new or Russian security concerns into the new vision of 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 of, of, of a globalized world and you know which was then used as fodder by yeah. by, by Putin followers. We have a couple minutes before we go to break. I know there are a couple of local events connected with this anniversary that each of you um, are, are wanting to, to mention here. This is probably a good time for that. Oksana, can I go to you? Uh, you brought a flyer in here, uh, and I'm reading the, the title here, uh, Ukraine, Democracy in Candles. That is actually today. Uh, what is happening today and where? So it's going to happen at 5 o'clock at Phillips Hall at the University of Iowa. We're going to make candles and uh, talk about democracy and Ukraine. I just want to have a talk about Ukraine, you know, and, and make people more aware about what's going on in Ukraine. And doing this while making candles is, I think it's a good idea. Okay, so this is inside Phillips Hall on the University of Iowa yes, campus, and, and, and yes. this is near the Pentecost, if people are looking for that, and anybody's welcome, I oh, have of course. Showing solidarity with Ukraine is yes. the chief message here, isn't it? Yes. Okay. And uh, Marina, uh, we have a, a, an event tomorrow as well that you're involved with. Right. Um, we're basically taking advantage of the expertise, social scientific expertise that we have here in the Midwest um, from political scientists and sociologists in, at the University of Chicago, University of Wisconsin, University of Illinois and Urbana-Champaign, as well as our own um, political scientists and sociologists here at the University of Iowa, bringing them together to talk about um, the year that has passed and the one that we are facing. Um, the idea um, behind this event is to draw on their expertise and trying to help understand the events. How can people find out more online? Yes, absolutely. University of Iowa International Programs website, please. Okay, we'll be back with more from Marina Zalasnaya of the University of Iowa, also Oksana Hershok, a student from Ukraine. Join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100. When we get, uh, come back, uh, we'll uh, welcome University of Illinois sociologist Cindy Buckley. She's focused on those displaced by uh, this conflict. More than 8 million refugees have fled Ukraine. Join our conversation when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer, marking one year since the 
start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine that has had um, worldwide implications since we've been hearing about constantly in our news. If you'd like to join our conversation, one 780 With us, uh, Oksana Hershok, a psychology student uh, from Ukraine at the University of Iowa. Marina Zalasnaya is a sociologist and political scientist at the University of Iowa as well. Uh, we had to go to break there, but Marina, you wanted to mention the location of this panel discussion uh, tomorrow, Friday at 5 p.m. That, that also centers on this anniversary. Yes, absolutely. The discussion um, is going to be held at the Iowa Memorial Union Theater. It's open to the public. There will be refreshments. Please come. Okay. Uh, also joining us this hour, Cindy Buckley, professor of sociology at the University of Illinois. Professor Buckley, Cindy, if I may, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Uh, tell us about your area of study and the perspective on uh, you have in your studies on this. I understand you are focusing on a huge part of this, which will uh, be carried through for for many years, displacement issues here. What are you looking at, and uh, what are you what are you dealing with? Well, as Marina so wisely pointed out, um, we need a long term frame of reference when we're looking at the hostilities in be, between Russia and Ukraine. So since 2014, I've been working with colleagues, um, Ralph Clem and Eric Heron, on a project looking at state capacity in the face of aggressive neighbors, looking at, at Ukraine, particularly the Donbass region. This is a country that's been dealing with internal populations since 2014. And so even before the escalation of, of hostilities one year ago, already had some pretty solid administrative capacity and legislative experience with displacement. But nothing really prepared Ukraine for the immense displacement of populations in the east. And now we're seeing even not only in the south and north, but increasingly in central Ukraine. As of January 2023, there were 5.3 million people in Ukraine estimated to be displaced from their home as a result of conflict. Some of them before last year, but 5.3 million in a country of approximately 40 million is an enormous statistic. You had mentioned that over 8 million people had fled across international borders, primarily into Eastern Europe, to seek refuge since um, the beginning of hostilities. I'd also like to point out that UN estimates are that 5.5 million people have returned back to Ukraine for a variety of reasons. Part of it is for family reunification. Part of it is perhaps to join the resistance and the war effort. And much of it has to do with economic factors. And so it is a place where um, in spite of conflict, there is enormous population movement and many people are moving multiple times in efforts to adjust to the hostilities. Mm -hmm. What are some wider implications from these huge displacements of of people uh, that you're dealing with? Well, one of the biggest questions that comes to mind is ideas of return. Are people coming back? Um, Ukraine has to have some sort of enticement plan to get people to come back when hostilities cease. Um, No matter what sort of land control issues may still be on the table, 
certainly many of the incredibly bright young people such as Apsana who have been overseas gaining valuable educational capital, they want them to come back. They also want many of the people who remain in Eastern Europe, North America, to come back to Ukraine to help in the rebuilding process. Previously, migration returns amongst IDPs and refugees have not been particularly high. I think as a demographer, when we look at Ukraine, we need to be very careful about making assumptions that there will be some reluctance to go back because of the incredibly intense patriotism, because of family reunification issues, and also due to this very strong national identity and desire to help, I think we may see many more of these refugees come back to the Ukrainian borders, whatever they may might be. And I also have found um, in doing long distance research with some, some colleagues in Ukraine that many people who have displaced are, re are ready and planning on moving back to areas that currently are either under Russian control or have suffered debilitating structural damage. So we may find a new pattern of refugee and IDP return in Ukraine. So um, uh, we should face. Yeah. Uh, Cindy, I wonder if you can speak to what we've been hearing in our news um, the past few months, um, the deportation of children from Ukraine to Russia. Can you outline the scale of that problem? Yeah. Well, um, in wartime, in actions that are questionable and indeed constitute war crimes, um, specific data are hard to come by. This is a very politicized topic. It is um, very painful for the Ukrainian population and the Ukrainian government, of course. The Russian government as well has vested interests in terms of how this process gets described. What do we know so far? We know that from um, NGOs on the ground in Ukraine, like the Center for Civil Liberties, we have documented cases of buses showing up during um, bombing raids in urban areas, claiming to be taking children to safety. In such a case, one can very easily understand why parents would be encouraging of getting kids on those buses. Mm -hmm. We have some sporadic incidences that have been um, uh, documented by people who were there that those buses then went east rather than west into um, the Russian Federation. More importantly, we have information from the directors of um, Internati, which are kind of like an orphanage, but not really. These are therapeutic residential um, uh, places for children, sometimes with mobility issues, sometimes with physical impairments, sometimes with developmental challenges. We have proof of seven different homes, again, not huge, but seven different locations where when control shifted to um, uh, the Russian forces, that children were evacuated and not sent back into Ukraine, but sent into Russia. Yeah. And the and number estimates vary. Yeah. 20,000 on the Ukrainian government yeah. side, but 100,000 on the Russian government side. 
Cindy, for those not acquainted, well acquainted with war crimes, why does this constitute a war, a possible war crime? So taking children and taking them from their parents, crossing an international border, and in the context of the law in Ukraine or in Russia that was passed in late November to speed the adoption of Ukrainian children, this is an, uh, uh, an attempt at sort of changing their national identity, changing their language, giving them Russian passports, and a very hard attempt at russification. Is this the entire story? Perhaps not. It may be that this is part of the story, and that in and of itself, this, this wholesale um, collection of children and the termination of parental rights taking the children across an international border does constitute a war crime. And there are cases being developed to the ICC. Mm-hmm. Marina uh, Zalaznaya, do you have a view on the, this, these uh, children ha- having been taken uh, to Russia proper or a different view from what Cindy has outlined here? Different perspective? No, I agree with Cindy. I mean, I think uh, it is beyond doubt, uh, if uh, accurate, um, and I have no um, reason to, 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 to not think it is, but it is definitely a war crime because, the, the, uh, you know, um, the way that we define genocide is not necessarily mm. about the number of people who have been affected. Genocide is about intention. And intention specifically of eradicating or um, making incompatible with life the um, conditions for a specific group of people, right? And that group of people can be defined based on ethnic shared characteristics or religious characteristics or racial. So this, you know, the, the taking the children away and russifying them is clearly genocidal. Yeah. I want to address before our hour is over, too, we, we were focused on displacement here. Uh, what about the fleeing Russians? Of course, there are many, many Russians, hundreds of thousands of Russians who vehemently di- disagree with uh, this action. Hundreds of thousands have um, voted, so to speak, showed their um, uh, displeasure with it. They've fled their own homeland in the past year. Um, I, I, I read, and perhaps you, you can confirm this, the largest number of Russians to flee Russia since the Bolshevik Revolution over 100 years ago. Uh, to you, Cindy Buckley, what are the implications of uh, this displacement? Well, I think that this displacement will, in the long run, have very negative impact on the already quite strong population problems that the Russian Federation is experiencing. There are hundreds of thousands of Russians in the near abroad, primarily because they could enter these countries without visas. In the countries of Kazakhstan, Armenia, Georgia, and Uzbekistan, there have already been bills put up in the parliament to change this free entry um, uh, practice for Russians. So there is being a there's been a pushback 
from the near abroad. Um, and then rather their concern is that this is an attempt to get Russian minorities in these countries and perhaps for Moscow to increase their control or at least their ability to portray an interest in the governance of these countries. And so it may be a case where Putin has overplayed his hand with mobilization because the movements have been large scale. There is evidence that many of these people are now trying to Western Europe, to South America, to North America, and are very unlikely to return. And that's only going to exacerbate the population dilemma that Russia is already facing. And, and Cindy, perhaps you can speak to the type of young Russian, male, female, uh, with intentions or having fled that. Uh, I understand they are often highly educated, perhaps IT-oriented, uh, and very mm-hmm. desirable for any country that they may go into. Right. Well, it even if you are just fleeing a, a border that is um, near to where you're living, you need resources to pack up and move. And so the migration out of Russia has been very, very concentrated among the upper middle and upper class. These are oftentimes college educated individuals. It skews male primarily because of the draft, but there are lots of women as well. And it's those who have mobile human capital that are able to see options outside of the country and flee. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. The IT um, area is a prime mover, lots of engineers, lots of um, academics, as um, Marina can can, um, attest as well. It represents a tremendous loss of human capital. Mm-hmm. Marina, 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 I think you wanted to speak to this point. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that it's also a sign that Russian regime over the last year has gone from being a competitive authoritarian regime where there was at least a facade of political competition to a totalitarian regime where the dissent and uh, free thinking is absolutely not tolerated. As Cindy uh, indicated, unfortunately, only few people can escape, um, and um, you know that that is very much perpetuates inequality. But it, it also bodes pretty poorly for for um, Russia, with uh, a significant um, flight of uh, the brain power and productivity and. Um, Young people in general, them facing demographic issues. We have just a couple of minutes of this conversation on the way out. I'd like to have you, uh, each of you, look forward uh, into the future. Um, uh, Cindy, you you first there. Um, We will be dealing with this, uh, uh, what has happened over the past year, this invasion for generations, won't we? What, what, What comes to mind that you will be watching most in the coming months? Well, um as a Midwest, all of us need to be watching in the coming months how much damage is focused on central Ukraine, the breadbasket. This is going to have massive ramifications for the stability of the Ukrainian state, because that's where their money comes from, but also the stability of international grain markets. It's uh, important to all of us. Yeah. Marina, what will you be watching? And, and um, it doesn't seem likely. I'm no geopolitical expert, but could this war come to an end in this year of 2023? Doesn't look like it, does it? 
Right now, it's hard to imagine the, any either side coming to the table. Um, one thing that I would like to um, bring to the uh, listeners' attention is that when we talk about supporting Ukraine, which is, of course, right now means funding um, the supply of weapons and ammunition and training, you know, we are facing significant, um, a difficult road ahead, not because the war itself is, uh, you know, going to last forever, but because we will need support towards Ukraine after the war is over. And right now, this is not as much of a part of a rhetoric, political rhetoric, Mm -hmm. right, um, as I believe it should be. So um, as President Biden tries to hold a coalition together that supports um, um, monetary injections into Ukraine, let's also think of this as a long-term issue, because that's when we will need to step in. In, in, in 30 seconds, Cindy, can you point any listeners who would like to help um, to um, somewhere on the web or can find out more information about helping? Um, yes, I'm really appreciative of Iowa Public Radio um, taking a list of some of the core NGOs in um Ukraine. This includes the Nobel Prize winning Center for Civil Liberties, as well as several other non-governmental organizations that are on the ground in Ukraine. If you go to the Iowa Public Radio website, there'll even be a um, a picture. You can just take a picture with your cell phone and it'll send you right to a tax-deductible charity. Go to iowapublicradio.org. Thank you, Cindy Buckley of the University of Illinois, Marina Zalasnaya of the University of Iowa, and Oksana Hershok, also of the University of Iowa. Thank you all for this conversation. River Today, River to River Today, uh, produced uh, by Caitlin Troutman with help from Danny Gear. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.